All right, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, so you can be turning there. Hebrews chapter 9, you know, as you, uh, if you come in, come into this church through the front doors over there, there's a, a scripture hanging up back there, beautiful picture, and a scripture that says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I hope that uh, you are glad as well that you came to the house of the Lord today. So I don't know who did, who did that, but it's probably been back there for a good while, um, hanging up on the wall, and I'm glad it's back there. Uh, all right, Hebrews chapter 9. We've been in Hebrews for a good while, and we are moving right along. Chapter 9. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now this is, this is talking about the first part of the, what we would know of the tabernacle this is saying that when you went into it, there was a first part, which means there's going to be a second part. And it's telling you what th these things that were there, the candlestick, the table, and the showbread. And, you know, we have some candlesticks right here. We have some bread up here. And uh, there's a, it's sitting on a table. And after the second veil... So there was evidently a doorway to go into the first part, but then there was a second place that was as a veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. So you got the things that you can see on this earth. Remember, it was a worldly sanctuary in verse 1, and these are worldly things that represent something that's way more holy. And we, as just normal people, would not be able to go into this holiest of all that was beyond that second veil. We would not, it's just too holy for us as just mere human beings, sinful as we are. So in this holy, holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna. Now that's that very special bread that rained down from heaven, and it would uh, be rotten by the next day. But this manna has been there in this golden pot for a very, very long time, and it is not rotting at all because it's in the holiest place, the holy of holies. And Aaron's rod that budded, and we can think about that rod that was used for smiting the rock, where the water would rush out and keep us alive, and what that represents. And the tables of the covenant, that law that Moses had on those tablets that he brought down, that moral law 
that would be hidden in the hearts of God's true people. Verse 5, And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Wow. So he's not going to go into that here. But it has some really deep meaning, and we're going to have to wait for it. But think about the cherubims and what they represent. A, ch- a cherubim was a cherub was a very amazing-looking creature. Now, we can kind of think about the angels and how these cherubims would represent angels that are always looking out. And when you think about Jesus Christ and what was associated with his being born on this earth, angels announced it. Think about that. Angels announced it. Think about when the shepherds were in the field and the angels announced to them where he was and to go find him. When Herod wanted Jesus dead, there was angels that were involved in warning so that they could get away. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, there were angels ministering to him. When Jesus died on the cross and was in the tomb, when they came to find him, to see him, there was angels there in that place. When Jesus ascended into the heavens, the angels were standing there asking, why do you gaze up into heaven? But we're really not to look into angels. We're not to worship them. We're not to think anything special of them, but they're special. And they were always around when Jesus was here ministering. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So they, it was normal. It was just an everyday thing for, the, for, for them to go into that first part. All of us are now ministers in some way. And we are all expected as ministers to, to, go, to, to do service to God. But to go into that holiest of all, there's no way that any of us can go there on our own. But is, it, but is it important to get there? It is very important for us to get to the Holy of Holies. But we're, we're just not able because we're sinful. We, we're not allowed to go into that place. And even back when the tabernacle was here, only one could go in. Seven. But unto the second... That, that holiest of all, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. Don't you dare go in there without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So this was a weak priest because he not only had to go in there with blood for the, for the uh, offerings of the people, but he had to offer blood for himself as well. 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, so this, this is a sign. This is a picture of something. 
that is even greater than what he did, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So they were waiting for something to happen, which was a figure. Notice these words, signaling and a figure. There's, There's those special words that we really need to pay attention to that tell us something was not yet made manifest, which was a figure for the time when present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Now, you know, this blood that was taken into this holy of holies uh, here in the tabernacle, this worldly sanctuary, it would, take, it would cover your sins for a while but it couldn't really and truly take away your sins. So think about at at this time when this was about ready to be um, changed, and think back at some of the saints from the past. Just think of David, because we know that David did a lot of terrible things. And the Bible is very sure to make sure you understand that he did some bad things even though he was one of the best types and pictures of Christ. So David would be in the list of some people that believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and that basically he was saved on credit so his sins were covered because he believed And maybe that's why all of those saints from the past, when they died, they went down into Abraham's bosom, that holding place. You can read about that in Luke 16. And then when the the high priest, the true high priest, Jesus Christ, came and shed his blood, Jesus would go to Calvary, pick up his blood, and take it to the true holy of holies in heaven, deposit it on the mercy seat, and God Almighty would look down, the Father would say, that is sufficient for everyone's sin. Any who turn to Jesus and accept what he has done for them, that is sufficient. So David would have to wait all those years in Abraham's bosom for that to happen in heaven so that his sins were truly taken away forever so that he can be in the presence of the Heavenly Father. Saved on account. Saved on credit for something that was coming in the future and which did come 2,000 years ago, which we are resting on right now today. The same blood that took away all of David's sins, took away all the sins of the people at the time Jesus died, and it took away all the sins of all of us who were a long ways from even being born. That's the blood of Jesus. The powerful blood of Jesus. Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers or different washings and carnal ordinances, see carnal is not a bad word, 
It can be, but it's just earthly things. It's just fleshly things that we need. We need heat in the wintertime. We need shelter from the elements. Those are just carnal things that keep our bodies alive while we're here on this earth. But they were carnal ordinances Im- imposed. They were, they were, it was like something that was mandatory. It was required. So they're in, you know, we don't like those things. We don't like those things that we have to do. But this was imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Reformation. I wrote down, Reformation, Jesus' priesthood, making the way into the Holy of Holies, was made manifest through Christ. Now you can go to uh, Revelation 4. Revelation 4, that chapter talks about this very thing that we just talked about in Hebrews. And in Hebrews, it's talking about something that was built by man according to God's instructions. This is how it's to be made. This is the size of it. This is what you put in the first part of it. And this is what goes into the second part of it. All of that was instructions of God. And it was a picture of what was in heaven. And it was made by man on this earth. So over in chapter 4 of Revelation, it says, After this I looked. Now who is that? John. John wrote... Revelation. After this I look. Now notice that this is after the seven churches. All those seven churches that represent the church ages throughout time, through the time of the bride of Christ being on earth, waiting for Jesus to return. So all these churches, the seven churches, and now all of a sudden the seven churches are not talked about anymore, and boom, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, immediately he was in the Spirit, it was just like that, And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Did you know that there were seven spirits of God? Well, now you do. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, that's the cherubim that is talked about over here in Hebrews. So they're beasts. And and, uh, the four beasts full of eyes. Remember, the cherubim had the face of an ox on one side, 
the face of a man on the other, over here, and then they had the face of a lion over here, face of an eagle going the other direction, looked every direction, those four faces, eyes every direction, you can see it's all-knowing and all-seeing. These uh, beasts, uh, let's see here, full of eyes, here's seven. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf or ox face, and the third beast was the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. They are and were created. So there is a place in heaven that John saw and told us all about it. So this tabernacle that was built on earth was a picture of something that is so amazing in heaven. Now the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Sprinkled. How many times is sprinkle or sprinkled in the Bible? I don't know. But in the New Testament, it's not that many times, and it's sprinkle and sprinkled. The first time that it's used in the Bible, it doesn't have to do with blood. It was actually part of the miracles and the judgments that Moses was doing in Egypt to Pharaoh. So the first time you see sprinkle and sprinkled, they're together in Exodus chapter 9, and it's when Moses took the ashes of the furnace and sprinkled it into toward heaven. And then all the people in Egypt got the boils on their, on their bodies and even the animals. And that was the ninth miracle Sixth judgment. But almost every time you see sprinkle or sprinkled, it has to do with blood. In Job, there was sprinkling of dust. But pretty much every other time you see it, it's sprinkling of blood. And it's almost... In the New Testament, it's Hebrews. It's only in Hebrews except for one time in 1 Peter 1-2, it talks about sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The other one, two, three, four, five, other six times that is mentioned in the New Testament, it's all in Hebrews. So you're going to hear every single time it's, it's used um, in Hebrews because we're going through the whole book of Hebrews. So I, I uh, haven't quite got there yet. We're almost, almost there to see the first time. Okay, so now that we've got through 10, 
That is talking about the earthly part of the tabernacle, the type and picture. Now let's get into what it represents. 11. This is back in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, this is to say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean... Notice the ashes, you know, sprinkling, the blood sprinkled. So here it is in uh, 13. It's the first time you see sprinkle, sprinkling. Uh, the unclean sanctifieth to the pure, purifying of the flesh. So if that... If doing that, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, if that sanctifieth, which, which we know as you're, you're set apart because of that. You're sanctified. It purified your flesh. And then it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. So if all of that is now called dead works, if that would, would get you through all of that stuff, which nowadays, because of what Jesus has done, has turned that into dead works. So if you try to go the old way of doing it, it's nothing but a dead work. So now it better be the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So if that was a type in picture, and it did something for you back then, how much more should the blood of Christ cleanse you, not just cover you for a period? See, we just read how it couldn't, it couldn't save you from, the, from that conscience of knowing that you were a sinner. But this here, the blood of Jesus, Purge your conscience so your sins are completely removed. And that's the only way you can be presented to a perfect Father in heaven that's in the true holy of holies. How can you ever think to go into a place like that? You Only in Christ Jesus can you possibly go into that place. The blood was sprinkled and when, in, which enables us to go past these things that we see, these candlesticks, this showbread, this table, We're, we can go past that into the true Holy of Holies because of the sprinkling of Jesus' blood in the true Holy of Holies. You know, I, when I, uh, we get done with joys and concerns and we go to the Lord in prayer we're going right into the throne room of grace because of what Jesus did. That's how each and every one of us can go there. We must remember that is the only reason that you can go there. The only reason that you can go into the Holy of Holies.
you've got to think about that. And you and if and I'm thinking, you know, I'm just preaching to the choir. Everybody should know this. But what I have found out is there's so few people who really understand it and really truly believe in it that Jesus said he he is the only way to the Father. And I have met people that I thought were very good, true Christians who don't really believe that that's the only way to the Father. I have met so many people who talk, you know, how great it is that I preach the Word of God, this, that, and the other, and how proud they are of me, of this, that, you know, and, I'll, and, and come to find out they believe that other religions can get you to heaven if you're sincere in those religions. When Jesus said that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through Him, and that there's no other name under heaven where a person can be saved. 15. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. So you, you because of the law, you were uh, convicted and you are worthy of death. That's what the old law did for you. Thank you very much, old law. That's just wonderful. But Jesus, he's the mediator. What's a mediator? He's someone who goes between the party who is under trial, they're, they're, they're guilty, and they've done harm to someone else, which is we have done wrong and have offended God, and Jesus has gone to God on our behalf to make restitution for what God deserves. He, he deserves to be... Uh, he, he, he has been wronged, so that needs to be righted. We have done wrong, and we need to be pardoned. And Jesus is that mediator, like a, like a good lawyer, who can go between the two and satisfy both parties that are involved. Now there is this testament, this New Testament, that Jesus is the mediator of, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So if you make a last will and testament, it does not take effect. It's no good at all until you die. Right? So if you have a lot of money and you make a will, just tell your kids that you've already put the children's hospital and all these other charities in your will and there's nothing left for them. And then they won't be wondering when you're going to die. So, yeah, they'll just treat you like just good old people. That's what you should tell them, regardless of what you really do. And see how they, how they respond to that. So that will does no good until the person who made the will dies. 
And Jesus died. He died on the cross. Perfect, sinless, blameless, but yet He allowed all of our sin and all the sins of David, and all not this David right here, but the David back in you know, 1 Kings and all that, uh, all of that terrible sin that, that he did, and, and Abraham, and Elijah, all those people from back then that sinned, all of their sin was placed on Jesus. All of our sin was placed on Jesus. And he died so that this will and testament would be in effect for us. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Water and blood. What came out of the side of Jesus when He was hanging on that cross, bearing all of our sins? Water and blood came out His side. Saying, now each and every one of these little things that we just mentioned in that verse have meaning. And we're not going into them, we don't have time for today. We're, we're cutting short. Oh, we got it. We got uh, communion, so we got to hurry. Um, y'all be preparing yourself for communion. You know, we got the bread and the the uh, fruit of the vine up here. So uh, uh, what, this message is all about communion. I think you've already seen that. So I don't have to do anything extra special to to go through that. We're we're ready. We're going to be ready when this sermon is done. We're going to be ready to take of the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood of Jesus. So just be ready for that. 20. Saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without Shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by sacrifice of himself and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Amen. Now, the Lord's Supper. I'm glad you came to the Lord's Supper today. Um, there, There is... 
this theme today is about being here, being present, is because that's our responsibility. You know, Jesus has done everything else. <laughs> Think about it. Think about all that Jesus has done. And what's our responsibility? To be present? To show up? And we are invited to the Lord's Supper. Every first Sunday of the month, you should be thinking, I'm invited to the Lord's Supper. On Wednesday, I, I, I made a comment, a statement about, we, we, we call this a worship service. It's on our bulletin, so it's official, right? It's right there, worship service. But do we do much worshiping at our worship service? That's what we really need to ask ourselves, and it's each and every person has to ask that question for themselves. And I shared how the Solomon in Ecclesiastes, I'm pretty sure it was 1-7, where he talked about how all the rivers of the earth flowed into the ocean, but yet the ocean didn't get any fuller. And God is just pouring down blessings on us. They're coming from everywhere. And we... And in turn, we offer back up to Him in the form of worship. So He is ministering to us. Just imagine these rivers of, of, of God's ministering coming down into us, and we don't overflow with it because we are worshiping Him, and it's going back to Him like the evaporation of the oceans, putting that back in to the atmosphere so that it can come back to us again. It's a, it's a cycle. And that picture of those rivers going into the ocean, that is a picture of what God is doing for us. And, of course, on Wednesday I said, if anybody comes to you and say, uh, the water level in the oceans is rising, then you look at them and say, it's because you're not worshiping enough. It needs to go back to God. See what they say. But just look at them and say, you are not worshiping enough because Solomon said that the oceans didn't rise anymore even though all the rivers of the world pour into it. And if they're getting fuller, it's because we're not giving back to God what He deserves. So start worshiping more. It'll fix all kinds of the problems you see on this earth. So in this little book here, I love A.P. Gibbs. He died like a year or two before I was born. And he goes by A.P. Gibbs. So he goes by his first two initials. He's been dead for a good while. And unless otherwise noted, this, all scripture quotations are from the King James Bible. Those are my three qualifications for people I really trust. They go by the first two initials. They've been dead for a while. And they read the King James Bible. I love those guys. Love them. He said, we have discussed the institution, the symbolism, the purpose, the participants, the procedure, and the day and frequency of the Lord's Supper. That's all of this part of the book. Now we are to consider the matter of our responsibility to it. 
We have seen what a great privilege and honor it is to be present at the ordinance which our Lord instituted on the eve of Calvary, but privilege brings with it a corresponding responsibility. Our Lord declared, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. That's in John 13, verse 17. Uh, I think Lois is in John 13 right now. She's going to read that and when she gets to 17. To know what the Lord would have us to do is one thing, and to do it is another. It would be far better not to know His will than to know it and not do it. What should be the response of each believer who has seen from the New Testament Scriptures the desire of the Lord Jesus for him to observe the Lord's Supper? Uh, and right after that, he has this uh, story of this couple who were invited to the White House. The president himself invited them to come to the White House for supper. And right about the time they're leaving, some, some relatives show up, surprise them, and what would they do? Would they say, oh, <laughs> will you call the White House and tell them that you know, we just got a surprise visit from our relatives and we can't make it tonight? But he said, that excuse works really well for people who go to church. Oh, well, you know, these people just showed up. He said there's this condition, this medical condition called morbus sabbaticus, otherwise known as Sunday sickness. And he said, uh, no symptoms whatever are felt on Saturday night. It never, it never, you don't ever feel them on Saturday night. But the symptoms, you know, they come on really, really strong Sunday morning. And how all the things that we come up with as excuses for not going to church, we never use those same excuses for going to work or school, things like that. Very seldom use it for that. Back then, especially when he wrote this. Nowadays, eh, yeah, people don't want to go to work either. But we need to be a people who treat the Lord's Supper not as, oh well, it's just another time of doing this thing, you know? That's how most of us have become. Yeah, we're just, yeah, we're doing communion. Well, I don't really like communion. You know, it takes a little longer to get out of church most of the time, and I don't even know if I want to go. This is the Lord's Supper that He has invited you to. We need to have way more reverence to it. So, again, the sermon wrapped it all up. I don't need to talk much more about it. Um, I want anybody here who would like to participate in the Lord's Supper for you to, on your own, and I'm, I'm going to help with Char, uh, but you know you can come up just, just as you feel like you're, you're ready to come up. Uh, Betty, you're going to come up and you, you can play. I'll bring you your uh, elements. But I just want everybody to come up on your own. If you need to pray about some things before you come up, do that. But on your own, just, just start to make your way up. I'll uncover, and you come up, and you just take from it, and you can go wherever you want to go. You can kneel here at what we call our altar. 
This is a man-made altar right here. We don't burn anything here. But it's for you to kneel and pray if you would like. You can go back to where you were, whatever you want to do. So go ahead and play. This is the bread. This is the body of Jesus broken for you. Come and take of the bread of the body of Christ. Here's the blood that was shed for you. Come up. Take of that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for the example and for this, this time of your supper. Father, you provide so much for us. Father, I pray that we would be a people who want to worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.